This is Aliens and Artists, part two of our conversation with Robin Lassiter. Exclusive for plusers and patrons, I'm your host, Stuart Davis. In this episode, when you move into a new place and there's an actual noose hanging from the tree in your front yard and frequent dead birds on the porch, would you like some four with that boating? Also, how to circumvent spiritual bypass. And when you are out of body and can't get back into body, also, and as well, moving a planet from a paradigm of evolution through suffering to one of joy and creation. That liberating moment when one says a cosmic fuck it, I'm going full disclosure, plus what witches and experiencers have in common, as also well too, and when Earth is not your main incarnational squeeze, but you fall in love, and you end up staying for good. Did I mention the descent of Inanna? But first... I was living in the yurt in this very, very heightened time when everything felt magical and easy and alive and supported. Part of me knew that it would, you know, it was going to have to come to an end relatively quickly. The yurt that I had was... Um, it was made of canvas. Like, I don't think that it was really meant to sustain years and years of Colorado winters. And I also knew that this was just a moment in time in my life. And so I, one night I had built this little circle out of little lichen covered stones with these pie wedge shapes in it. And I would invite my friends over and we would meditate and howl at the moon and, and walk around singing Jeremiah was a bullfrog and Santeria and stuff like that. And we just, we had this great, wonderful time. And so I went, I went one night to that circle and it was a full moon and I felt so safe and alive and connected. I prayed this prayer to the moon that I don't recommend, but I prayed that I would get from A to Z in this lifetime as quickly as I could. Like I wanted to blast through all of my baggage. I wanted to strip away all of the things that were keeping me from being fully present. And what I wanted most was to be broken open by love. I wanted to be shattered open. And those were the words that I used. I wanted my heart to be shattered open into a million pieces so that it could never come back together again in a way that would armor me to the world. And when I prayed that prayer, it felt very beautiful and powerful and meaningful. I may have laid it on a little too thick. The next seven years or so of my life were pretty rough, but I feel like that's what happened. I feel like I went on this crash course of my own personal evolution, and it was through the particular lens of suffering and attachments and relationships and addiction and abusing my body and abusing alcohol and all of these things, which is so, it was such a different state than I was in that it was just another shock to my system. So I prayed that prayer not long after I met a man And still at that time in my life, I was very much like, well, that's what it was all about. You know, you go on this journey, you pray a prayer, you meet a guy, you have a life together. 
and you're done. Good job. You achieved what you were supposed to do in the world, which is sort of a normal looking life from the outside. And we began to look for a house and we were trying to find a place between our families who live 12 or 14 hours apart. We were trying to find a place that was kind of in between those two points so that we could visit both of them easily. And what we found was this abandoned house in sort of central New Mexico. It was a 115-year-old adobe house. Beautiful. It wasn't even adobe. It was this process that they use. They When the rivers used to flood and then recede before there were irrigation ditches everywhere that kind of prevent that from happening, they would go down to the mudflats and scoop out these big mud blocks. And that's what this house was built out of. So the walls were, I don't know, 20 inches thick or something. And the floors were brick and there were tin ceilings and it was just beautiful, beautiful house. And it had been abandoned and there was still a lot of the previous owner's possessions there. And we moved into that house and pretty much immediately it all began to crash down. I started drinking again. I started smoking again. Our particular demons, like each of our demons played really well together. I'll say that. So, you know, I'd never been in a relationship like this that was emotionally and sometimes physically a really, really unsafe place to be. And I once again, I was just shocked. I was just so shocked. <laughs> I, my sensitivity never adjusted to the world. And so it was, it just caught me off guard, especially coming from the heightened place of being in the yurt and coming to this new place. And so the other thing that was happening in that house was that it was fully, fully haunted. I've never in my life been around so much paranormal and poltergeist activity. When we arrived on the property, there was a noose that was hanging from a tree. And I, again, I guess in my like innocence or, or whatever, I just thought, I just was like, I, I can't imagine why that's there. <laughs> we found these journals. The people there were really tortured. They'd had a very, very difficult time. And we'd wake up in the middle of the night and somebody would be, there'd be these knocks, these, these huge knocks, like somebody was knocking on a front door, trying to get in, you know, really angrily, but it would be right next to our heads in bed and we would jump up and all the dogs would go crazy. And it was terrifying. And it was, it was taking its toll on me. So it wasn't just the relationship. It wasn't just the, the really out of control, scary nature of that. And it wasn't just the real deep dive back into, if I had been sort of drinking and doing drugs and, and stuff to kind of just keep a distance from how real and alive the world felt. And I wasn't prepared for that. If I was just trying to keep like some buffer against that with those substances before now, I was diving really, really deep in a really dark way into all of that. It was really dangerous. It was really scary. And so there were those three things. There was like this very unsafe relationship, the addiction, and then what was happening in the house. And they all converged. And 
just really, really took their toll on me. There were often, you know, dead birds on the porch. I, every place that I lived that I could, I always had a garden and we had this really massive garden, but it never thrived. Like, and I know that that could just be like a garden, not thriving, but it all felt connected to me. It, you know, the flea beetles just decimated everything. And I, I couldn't keep it going often in my life had chickens and never had any problems with them. And I got chickens and they got infested with mites and they got very sick. And there was just so much darkness there. In fact, the day, so there's two other things. One is that the address of the property was 1111, which that number sequence would continue for the next probably three or four years of my life in a really baffling way, the way that synchronicities can sometimes drive you crazy because you're following these little breadcrumbs and they never seem to lead anywhere, but they're so undeniable that you can't push them aside. And that's what that time period was like. And so the property address was 1111. The day that I bought the property, a huge branch from this massive cottonwood tree that was in the front yard fell and crushed the gate and blocked the entrance. And <laughs> I just should have seen it coming. You know, I should have seen the signs. I, I should have paid really close attention, but I did not. And so things are just getting more and more out of control. I'm keeping it a secret from everyone because I'm very ashamed. It's not as if in the relationship things were just happening to me. The worst unhealed, wounded aspects of myself were rearing their heads. Like I was. I was so ashamed. I was so ashamed. I was so ashamed of how angry I was and how kind of helpless I was and how honestly there was kind of a part of it that was delicious to sink into that self-pity and pain and victimhood and all of the things that surrounded that. And I'm not excusing any of it, but those were the energies that were at play. And I was fully inside of that. And I could not figure out how to get out of it. And in the meantime, the knocking, and I was having these just horrific nightmares about things that didn't feel like they had anything to do with me. And this continued on for a while until something happened that came to a point where one of us or both of us going to die. It came right to that edge. It came right up to that edge. It shook me out of my inability to move on from this, from this situation that I'd found myself in that I kind of didn't even know how I got there or how quickly it all fell apart. It shook me awake out of that. I ended the, the relationship that night, which was life-saving. It was needed. But I, I stayed in that house and I stayed there alone and I was so broken at that point. I, was, I didn't stop drinking. I didn't stop you know, smoking. I became sort of this, I call that time the time that I was a hungry ghost. I was just like, whatever I needed to be rescued, I needed to be saved. I couldn't save myself. And I was latching on to whoever and whatever could rescue me from this. It was an incredibly painful time. I also had an experience with the main entity, the, go the ghost, the, the spirit that inhabited that house I got the story from the neighbor about what had happened there and the darkness that was there. And it was, it started out really beautiful. And these, you know, these people had moved there. They, 
a woman from California, she called it her ranch and which is, it was not, it was a little dusty one acre plot of land in the middle of New Mexico desert, but she loved that property. And the minute she got there, she got very sick, wheelchair bound and went blind. I don't know if it was a stroke or diabetes or something, I can't remember, but whatever it was, he then, her husband was put in this position of caretaking her, which he did for six years until she died. And during that time, he would go out and sit at the back of the house and stare at the noose that was in the tree and contemplate taking his life. And there was just so much darkness there, so much pain. And when the neighbor gave me that story, I I didn't know who I thought the ghost was or what I thought that entity was, but I came to understand really clearly that it was her. Because one night the knocking happened and I sat up and she, you know, she was in the bedroom. She kind of appeared to me and I, so I had Googled how to get rid of a ghost, you know, as one does, because that's what, that's what you do. So I had, I had Googled what to do about this. And I, the answer that I got was that it's people who are stuck and don't realize that they can leave and you can sort of help them and direct them on their way. And I, I, I had no idea what I was doing and I'm not prescribing this or recommending it to anybody. All of this, I've just, I wing it, you know, I just do my best. And when I am up against the wall and don't know where to turn, but she was there and just so angry at me, just so much rage. And I told her that she could go home and I pointed to the corner of the room where there felt like there was a little bit of light. And I told her that I wouldn't do anything bad to her place and that I wasn't here to to in any way take anything from her and that she could, that it was okay that she go. And she did. That was the last time that any of those experiences had ever happened. So I was really in the depths. I was, I was not able to pull myself out. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to go. I'll say it was just getting worse and worse. It was getting more and more dangerous. I was going to really, really hurt myself or someone else. I felt so far away from my true nature, so far away from love and innocence and light. And now with hindsight, I realized that all of that is also a part of me, all of all of those things that I was experiencing, but I was so confused by it all, honestly, and I, I couldn't keep my head above water. And so it was just more and more dangerous all the time. So one night in a blackout drunk, I stepped out of my bedroom and that little hallway had a little row of bricks as a step, which is not a great idea, but I, I turned my ankle on that and I broke my ankle. And I have no memory of that night other than that moment as I fell. And what happened in that moment as I, as I fell is that the four beings who were made of that golden light and buzzing sound were there in the hallway with me. And as I fell, they cradled me and they showered me. They were just showering me with love and compassion. And they said, it was this or something worse. And what I understood was, is that they, they stopped me. This is really, it's difficult to talk about because 
partly because it's of the, you know, just the difficult time, but that, that detail of them intervening in a way that was so painful. I broke one ankle. I sprained the other ankle really, really badly. And then I, in my drunken state, walked around on it all night, not feeling it. It was horrible. It was, it was really bad. The next day when I went to the emergency room, I, it was so swollen that they couldn't cast it. It was bad. And the fact that they told me basically that they did this is still a detail that I, I don't feel, I, I feel nothing. Honestly, I feel nothing but gratitude, but I feel a lot of charge and electricity and vulnerability in my body talking about that moment. But that was the last day that I had a drink. <laughs> uh, I know, you know, that's the day that I got sober. They stopped me in my tracks and it truly likely saved my life. And it, I also feel that it saved me karmically because I feel like I was going to hurt someone else. I feel like I was going to drive when I shouldn't be driving and something would have happened that would have caused me to go on this, you know, to need to, to wrestle with that and suffer with that. And I feel like they prevented that. And I felt that instantly. It's not something that I kind of came to over time or thought maybe they did that for my good. It was, it was all in that moment. I understood it. I understood it in that moment. So I wasn't drinking, but I wasn't well. I immediately got into another relationship that was also not great. And I sold the property as quickly as I could for whatever anybody would give me. And I ran again, because that's, that's how I navigate, navigated the world for a really long time. I just picked up and left. So this time I picked up and left and went to Hawaii, which is, which sounds wonderful. <laughs> and parts of it really were. So I, I moved us to the big island. I once again gave away everything that I owned, things that were precious and meaningful to me, but that I... I had no capacity to deal with or to put in storage or I just gave it, I left, I left most of the furniture in the house. I just, I left, I, I packed up and left and I moved to the big Island and the big Island is amazing and powerful and incredibly beautiful. And in a lot of ways, it's really safe. The temperature of the air is most of the time, you know, really, really nice. It feels like, it feels like there's this like a density of of the air and the humidity and all of that that you can sort of fall into and relax into and um, there's nothing that can really hurt you on land you know the ocean is full of things that can hurt you but aside from the fire ants that are around sometimes like it's a very very physically safe place and i really needed that after the relationship that i had just been through and I spent, I think I arrived there in maybe the end of August or into September and, and lived on the rainy side of the island. And so that fall, it just rained, like a curtain came down around me and it poured rain 
day and night for weeks. And I, I just hid inside of that. I hid, I, I was on crutches. I couldn't really go anywhere. And I just, you know, I hid inside of that and stayed in bed and I still had a job, but I lived off mostly the money, the little bit that I'd made from the house that I sold. And I just physically healed for a really long period of time. And as that was happening, this new relationship that I had was still very tumultuous. It was, you know, it was still those energies that were playing out, you know, all of the fear of being on the planet and not really understanding how any of this works and looking around and going, this is what people do. They get together, they have a life, they have kids, they get a house. Like what, what am I missing? I can't, this isn't working for me and I don't know why, but I need this to work for me. Like if I can just have a big comeback, <laughs> like exalted existence at the yurt into the depths of hell at this Adobe in New Mexico. And now I'll just have like this great love story that'll pull it all together in Hawaii. And that is not what happened at all. It, it was a similar sort of desperation, this need to be rescued. I just, I really needed somebody outside of myself to rescue me. And the more that I needed that, the more that the person I was with just reeled away from it. I began to have all these emotions that I had never allowed myself to have before, like rage and utter pain and, you know, the, the sort of victimhood that I had allowed myself to slip into in New Mexico was like my cloak and I just wore it and I lived in it. And I, I was so angry that I wasn't being saved. And I know what those energies are. I, I, I can feel them. I, you know, they still, they still are with me, but I also understand now <laughs> after like therapy that there's this codependent dance that happens and there's trauma bonding that happens and all of these things. And those things are real. And I used that knowledge as tools to kind of pull me out of that. But also there are the energies themselves that are in this really profoundly sacred dance. There's the feminine and the masculine and those two energies, that sort of duality. And they really are one and they really do overlap. But when they're in their you know, when they're sort of in separation and they're trying to, to, at the center point of duality, there's kind of this paradox in the middle that contains an annihilation and a resolution of that paradox. And it feels like a death, which is why those energies are so profoundly activated when they engage with each other. So all of that was happening. For a while, I put that aside and I said, no, I was just an alcoholic, codependent, hot mess. And that's true too. Like I can see all of the layers. I can see all of the things that are happening in the, in the kind of multidimensionality of this planet that we live on. So all of that was happening at the same time. And it was a cleansing fire because I could not no matter how much I raged, no matter how hard I tried, no, no matter how much I sort of like sacrificed myself on the altar of this experience, I could not get what I wanted. I couldn't, nobody would rescue me. Nobody would do it. And so ultimately I woke up again from that and went, you know, like I'm, 
what is this? What's going on? I need help with this. And so I found a therapist and it was great. It was like another nervous system and an energy to kind of walk me through and hold a frequency for me that I could mature into. He really, really, really helped me. And I saw him for 18 months, like twice a week for 18 months. And it really helped me settle into a new blueprint. And during that process, what happened was I had repressed and really judged all of the parts of myself that were crying out and that were really in a lot of pain. And, you know, during this whole time, probably from the year up until this point, there was a lot of spiritual bypassing going on. There was a lot of like, just think good thoughts. And if if I could just try to be a good enough person and just try to keep my vibration high enough, then then this wouldn't be happening to me. So I was constantly failing because I couldn't think my way out of this. I, I couldn't think of enough rainbows and butterflies to pull myself out of this experience that I was having. And so it was this kind of constant failure. And I just kept pushing away all of the parts of myself that I rejected, you know, and they were down there in the depths, just like forming into this big psychic shadow of mine that I was just like, the more I pushed down there, the more they power down there in the dark that they started to accumulate. And I, I didn't know any of that, but I, at some point it became the presence of, of all of the repressed parts of myself became so, so in the room with me, it became another person in the room. I was living in this beautiful little dome, actually, weirdly, I found this little tiny dome on the Hamakua coast. And there was a big hibiscus bush in the front yard and the hibiscus flowers would fall down and these wild pigs with their little piglets would come and eat the flowers in the evening. And I had a banana tree and I, once again, like here I am in paradise and I'm miserable and broken. Is like that Alanis Morissette song, you know, she's like, who am I to be broken? Who am I to be angry? Like, who am I to be blue? Look at my house, look at my family, look at my money, look at all these things. And I just wouldn't allow myself to face my own agony. I was just tortured by it. I was really tortured. I just kept pushing it away. And so finally, one day, I, again, I, I tried all the doors, I tried all the strategies, I couldn't, there was no way out of this. And finally, I, I really consciously chose to turn towards the pain, to turn towards this presence that contained all of my repressed, wounded self. I laid down on the couch and I opened a little I turned towards it a little and it just like sucked all the air out of the room. Like I gave an inch and it just, it was right there. And I gave a little bit more and it got even closer. It was a moment, another moment that felt like a death. Whatever it is about facing these things felt to me like I was going to be annihilated. And it was being willing to turn towards that annihilation that once again for me shifted the story something new happened and and in that moment as i turned towards all of my pain and kind of opened to it two things happened at the same time one is that it just blew through me 
it shattered my heart. It answered the prayer that I had prayed at the yurt to the moon. It shattered me open. My own pain shattered me open. And the other thing that happened is that I was like, oh my God, <laughs> she, this pain contains my voice. This pain contains my creativity. This pain contains my capacity for joy. It contains my ability to feel the world fully. It contains my vulnerability. It, all of that was contained. You know, it was, it was an immediate, like the gift in the shadow. And it shattered me and I was annihilated and I didn't die. All of those things happened at once. It was a really profound moment for me and I uh, changed. You know, these things don't, it's like the event happens and then there's a unspooling through time of it settling into the body and integrating. And, but in that moment, I, I was changed because I, I didn't push it away anymore. I began to let myself feel and to really honor the parts of myself that I had pushed away. Pretty quickly after that experience, I'd been on the island for almost two years and I hadn't gone to the mainland once. And I had heard people talk about having feelings at some point of claustrophobia, you know, like the, it just kind of hits you that you're on this island surrounded by this immensity of the ocean and so far from, from other land. And I pretty quickly needed to get off the island. <laughs> I was like, I'm done. I got it. It's fine. It was just before the volcano started erupting. So it was late 2017 and the volcano erupted in 2018 and flowed through a neighborhood where I had strongly considered buying a house and like Pele got activated and I needed to go and I left before all of that happened and I left and came back to Colorado I actually came back to my to the little valley where I grew up and I had given away everything that I owned, so I had, you know, three suitcases. I didn't have a winter coat. I didn't have boots. I came back in December. Hey, Minus listener. To hear this episode in its entirety, just become a patron or a plus member by clicking the link in the show notes. Patrons get all kinds of exclusive, often illegal shit. Sure, I mean drugs. Exotic pharmaceuticals. Patrons and plusers, we know being so generous and supportive of aliens and artists can be extraordinarily stressful. That's why patrons receive complimentary doses of the most powerful anti-anxiety compound ever synthesized. First released in 1980, this mysteriously potent narcotic has tranquilized boomers in beamers and cokeheads in concords. It's a goddamned panacea. It's Sailing by Christopher Cross from the Christopher Cross album Sailing. It's about relaxing sailing. Just ask Christopher Cross. This mellifluous yacht rock binds to move opioid receptors and activates your brain's reward center. Until that center says, Hey, here's a reward. It's Christopher Cross singing 
sailing. But it's not far down. Mm, not yet, Chris. Simmer down. Okay. Where were we? Um, sailing takes the nervous out of your nervous system. Ah. That euphoric feeling is dopamine and serotonin. 69ing in your reclining mind. You know it's genuine Cristo Crosso when you see a pink flamingo. The pink flamingo. That's how you know it's real. No, not that pink flamingo. That's the cover to the Christopher Cross album, Another Page, released in 1983, which was fine, I suppose. Think of Laura, who's pretty mellow. But goddammit, Cristo. Wait for my cue, Chrissy Cross. The cue. Where was I? Yes. I mean, the other pink flamingo, the one on the cover of the album, Sailing, by Christopher Cross, featuring the eponymous song, Sailing. Mmm. Sailing is so, so horrific. It makes fentanyl feel like a frenzied flibberdigibbet. Oh, Christ on a cross, Christopher! Wait for my fucking cue. It's Christopher Cross, soft as moss, sailing patrons and plussers into a dozy bay of sedated play. Okay, now sing, Chris. Come on, Mr. Christo. Open that Grammy-winning piehole and flap some lips. La li love sailing blind, you know it. Go ahead, you know. I'm a wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald man myself. That's true. Have you met Gordon Lightfoot? The legend lives on from the Chippewa down to the great lake they call Gitchagumi. Superior said never gives up your dead when the gales of November turn gloomy. You all know I do one-on-one -on -one sessions, right? If you want to book one, you know what to do, yeah? Smoke signals. The Kuskoi bird language, interpretive dance, it all reaches me the same because, as Schrodinger said, consciousness is a singular, the plural of which is unknown. And since true, I actually said that, and you may call me Irwin. Thank you.